Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Welcome to City of God. Today on the podcast, I am joined by my assistant at the Center for Public Theology, Mike Dixon, an MDiv student here at Midwestern Seminary, very sharp thinker, uh, friend of mine, and overjoyed to have him on the podcast conversing with me about the movie 1917. Welcome, Mike. How are you? Doing well. It's a pleasure to be here on the City of God podcast with you. Now, uh, listeners are already going to be picking up that uh, you have a voice for radio. I didn't say a face for radio. (laughs) You have a voice for radio. Tell us a bit about your background. You were actually thinking about doing this full-time, weren't you, before ministry call? Right. I was, all throughout high school, I was involved with radio television, mostly uh, in the sports field. I would, uh, I was the commentator for all of our high school sports uh, games and matches, and that was really fun. I enjoyed it. Football, uh, basketball, a little bit of, of baseball, and then I got a full-ride scholarship to do that uh, at the radio television college school of Arkansas State University. Wow. And enrolled there my freshman year and was kind of on the fast track to do that for a living. I even had a plan that I was going to rise through the ranks right as Mike Shannon would retire, the play-by-play radio broadcaster for the St. Louis Cardinals. And I had it aged out perfectly, and I would I would kind of come under him and become the new guy for the Cardinals. Sheesh. But then, uh, yeah, I was kind of wrestling with a call to ministry throughout that and recognized that call in my life and transitioned into a Bible college as hard as that was, but I still enjoy it. I still enjoy the art form of listening to a good baseball play-by-play broadcaster mm-hmm. uh, on, on radio. So uh, it's, it's kind of been a passion of mine, and I enjoy mm. it. Mm. Well, in all seriousness, it's, it's great to have you on, and, uh, and you've, you've provided, as I said just a minute ago, really good service for the Center for Public Theology, for me more broadly, in my small little role here at Midwestern Seminary. Very thankful for you. Mm. And uh, as I said, Mike is an MDiv student here at Midwestern, um, pastor theologian in training, uh, member of Warnall Road Baptist Church, and again, a friend. So here we are talking about a really good movie. 1917. We're not actually going to talk about the St. Louis Cardinals, interesting as that would be. Uh, Mike is not planning currently on supplanting Joe Buck and others. Right, no. <laughs> not right now. It could happen, though. So if you're out there and you want to pull him out of ministry and, and launch him into baseball uh, as an announcer, you can do that. In all seriousness, I wrote a piece for Providence Magazine a little bit ago um, on the movie 1917, which is a little weird, frankly, Mike, just as I set the, the stage here briefly for us. Because the movie came out four months ago Mm -hmm. in America. Um, Why write a piece about it? Well, basically it was this. I watched the movie and thought that there was more going on in the movie than, mm, not to sound uh, over the top here, but that most critics, professional critics who watch films far more expertly than I do, saw. And so uh, I thought I'd take a crack at writing a, a longer essay, a review essay, and uh, sent it to Providence Magazine, and Mark Tooley and friends there published it. And my central motif in the piece is that 1917 is not uh, a trick shot film, as many reviewers said. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not just a film about um, a quest, you know, a quest film. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, uh, It's not just a war movie. I actually think there's a lot more going on in this film in a kind of spiritual way. Um, so let me ask you at the outset here, we'll just get a conversation going. 
What did you think about 1917 overall? Yeah, I thought I thought those aspects were beautiful. Uh, the aspects that you mentioned earlier, just the uh, the one one shot cinematography that went into making. I thought that was mm-hmm. brilliant. Um, I haven't seen a movie that executed that in a long time, and it drew me in from the beginning. There's no time to catch your breath during the movie. I think the first black screen comes in like an hour and ten minutes into the movie, mm-hmm. um, so you're just on this journey with these with these soldiers. Um, but it is so much more profound than simply the cinematography, which was brilliant in and of itself. Um, I think you, in your piece, you, you line out three kind of themes, the theme of trees, family, and renewal. And as I read through it, I waited until after I watched the movie, which admittedly was far too long to wait <laughs> to watch this movie. But uh, the pandemic kind of changed my, my mm. plans and everything. And I finally got around to watching it last week. And um, I know <laughs> it was too long. Uh, it felt criminal, but I, I, I waited until after to read your piece in Providence. Uh, and yeah, the trees, the family renewal, those themes really are the backbone of the movie um, as, as you watch. And so I'd like, for, I'd like to hear you um, talk about first the importance of the trees in the mm. movie as they are a major theme. It, it kind of, they're bookends. Um, the soldier resting against the tree at the beginning to his call to action, and then at the end, resting against the tree. Um, it, it's a beautiful bookend of the movie. Uh, so I'd love to hear your your thoughts on the trees, uh, the theme of trees, and how that relates to biblical mm-hmm. theology of, of trees. Yeah, really fun question. Um, spoilers, by the way. Spoiler alert. Everybody has to say <laughs> that now in this age. I think people would assume that. And by the way, the movie's been out for four months, so, um, right. <laughs> you know, uh, folks are going to have heard some about it. Yeah, when I was watching the film the first time in the theater, of course, not taking notes, uh, not planning to try to write a review or something like that. Again, I'm I'm an amateur reviewer and and deservedly so. But I did notice that there were numerous instances where where trees were engaged. Um, the cut flower conversation mm-hmm. and among the cherry trees. I, I did notice, I mean, lots of people did. And then I noticed um, the trees lying in the middle of roads. Mm-hmm. in numerous places, trees being used as roadblocks by the German army. And that that did stick in my mind a little bit. Um, and then noticing towards the end that uh, the song, uh, I Am a Wayfaring Stranger, mm-hmm. was sung in a glade as soldiers were at rest, something that I didn't really sufficiently touch on in this review essay. There's more to say, I think, about that scene. Absolutely, yeah. But, um, but anyway, the point is this noticing these various details in the film 1917 made me think that there's probably more to this motif of trees. But I had to wait several months to confirm that that supposition, that that sense. And so when the movie came out just, just a month or so ago, I don't remember when exactly, on uh, Amazon Prime, I bought the film and and I was watching closely to see just how integrated this theme of trees was. And again, not watching from an expert perspective or something like this. And with this Providence essay, do not think that I have plumbed all the depths of the film. But something made me sit up in my seat um, 30 minutes in or so, 34 minutes in, I think it is. Uh, Schofield, one of the two main characters, says to Blake, just after a momentous bomb explosion scene, keep your eyes on the trees. Mm-hmm. I hadn't heard that the first time. I completely missed it. Mm. 
I, I think like probably a ton of people watching the film, right. we, we missed that line. But um, Mike, I think this is my sense, not confirmed, but I think that is Mendez slash the screenwriter, Christy Cairns Wilson, um, telling us something, giving us a clue. Right. I think. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that, that line is, is thematic. It, it is thematic. And when he wanders into the glade after this horrifying journey that he's been on and he, he wanders into that glade, you do feel the rest, the music, the man singing. This company of soldiers is at rest in this moment. And of course, there's, there's more after that scene. Mm -hmm. But it's almost like he's home. It's almost the idea of rest. And then the song, Wayfaring Stranger, I'm going home to meet my father, to meet my mother, these, these themes that are carrying through and, and the idea of rest with the complete trees. Um, it, it's like you can finally catch your breath at that scene. Um, yeah, exactly. And trees, trees are so important to the biblical storyline. You mentioned mm -hmm. this a minute ago, the biblical meta-narrative. Uh, it's, a, it's a tree that undoes us uh, in Genesis 3, Adam's fall, uh, eating the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a tree that saves us, uh, uh, so to speak, the cross wood uh, to which Jesus is nailed and upon which Jesus absorbs all the wrath of God the Father against our sin for us. And then if you move ahead to the book of Revelation, a book that evangelicals of our generation, yours and mine, that is fear to tread into <laughs> in many cases, um, you see in Revelation 22, 2, that there's a tree of life in the new heavens and the new earth. And scholars debate exactly uh, whether there's two trees or multiple trees or one tree, because it seems to be a, a river cutting through the new mm -hmm. Eden with a tree actually on either side. So there's there's details to piece together there, right. as uh, you may have heard about the book of Revelation. <laughs> Nonetheless, there's a tree of life, um, and its leaves heal us, which I think is probably pointing back to the cross of Christ. Right in some form that tree is represented in the new heavens and new earth as that which is, has given us life, not just healing in a physical sense, mm -hmm. but comprehensive healing. Right. Which is just preposterously beautiful to think about in biblical terms. Right. The, the, I was thinking when I was, when I was reading your piece and that I was thinking back through the movie is trees being tied to rest mm -hmm. when Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden after partaking of the tree, the toil of the ground, not they won't rest. They won't be able to experience God's rest like they were in Eden. And then Christ solves us and brings us into his own rest through his death on the tree. And then mm. part of that healing will be eternal divine rest for those who are in Christ. And in 1917, we see the same thing with Schofield as he's resting by the tree, he's called away from the tree mm -hmm. into this horrific journey. And then at the end of the movie, we see him resting against the tree. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea, it, it's genius thematic filmmaking, mm -hmm. uh, the idea of trees bringing rest. Um, and we even, I think I experienced that when I'm in a park, it seems so restful when I'm lying next to a tree, reading a book or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we can even feel a sense of that in our own lives. Yeah, I agree. I grew up in Maine <laughs> and uh, you grew up in, in Arkansas. Right. And both are states that feature a ton of trees. Absolutely. Uh, you and I took a trip, um, I don't know, a year, a year ago, not quite a year ago, to um, northern Arkansas. 
And uh, I, I was doing a little speaking. You were visiting some family, and I was stunned at the forests of Arkansas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, truly some of the most beautiful land I've seen anywhere right. in the world. Mm. Uh, and being from Maine, trees are everything. When you drive into Maine, um, you, you are hit in a wonderful way by the mm-hmm. smell of pine. Mm-hmm. I, I always point this out to people, friends, if you know we're driving into Maine or something, or the New England study tour that we've done before, probably doing again in 2021. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll point it out to, to friends and, and they'll smell it. You smell trees. Mm. And uh, for someone like me, coming from that kind of background, trees don't only signify rest, but that is a profound thing that they signify. They, they, they signify uh, this massive shade that they provide, the strength. Uh, and so you can find solace underneath them. And I do think, I don't have this confirmed, we don't, I wish we could. I wish we could get Sam Mendes on this podcast and talk with him and his screenwriter about this film and exactly what they were after. But we Mm -hmm. do, throughout the film, have this sense that wicked man, humanity, which is all of us in Adam, in theological terms, destroy trees and thus rob the the earth, the created order of rest. But that, um, if you will, redeemed humanity or right humanity, humanity made right, um, uses trees rightly, stewards trees, and and more significantly, finds in them rest, mm. which is, again, a beautiful motif to ponder that first one uh, from Mendes. Absolutely. I think your second theme, so, so you move from trees, the importance of trees in the film, into the rebuilding of the family. Mm. And we're kind of thrust into this narrative of two young soldiers. We don't know anything really about them from the onset of the film but throughout we we get little glimpses into their character particularly in the basement apartment scene with Schofield as he encounters a, a French woman and a baby uh, who actually isn't even hers it, it turns mm-hmm. out she's just taking care of this child um, yeah why don't, why don't you talk a little bit about the idea of family throughout the movie and and even the rebuilding of the family throughout. Yeah, I I saw this scene mentioned again in numerous reviews basically as an oddity. It's this weird scene, this kind of uh, fabricated scene from Mendez that doesn't fit really in the narrative. And I, you know, I I, I do understand critics um, raising the, the point that Schofield's um, journey in particular does feel a little bit staged. Mm-hmm. It, it does feel a little bit uh, allegorical, right. so to speak. Um, so I get that. But nonetheless, I, I think, okay, yeah, may, maybe it feels slightly like we're being moved, you know, in a kind of uh, cinematic paint-by-the-numbers way. But don't miss <laughs> these scenes. Don't miss what they pack. They, they conceal thunder and lightning in them in terms of spiritual and theological and philosophical significance. What I think is happening in that basement scene is that Mendez is telling us exactly how the trees need to bloom. Mm-hmm. So, so he's not actually in this film, as I read him, making a conservationist case in a physical sense, ultimately. I think he probably is. Mm-hmm. But he and his screenwriter are actually saying something much more significant. They're making a civilizational point. And I don't know, as I say in this Providence essay, I don't know if they are making it from an explicitly Christian worldview of some kind or a romantic worldview, so some sort of 
aesthetic worldview. I don't know where exactly they're coming from. Again, my hope and, and even prayer is that someday I'll get to hear more about that just because I find this, again, a very profound film and I love film and clearly others do as well, you included. And so I love thinking about these things uh, myself. The point, though, is the trees are not just supposed to bloom physically. This is actually the blooming, if you will, that needs to happen. Uh, if, if the family is cut down, uh, to transpose those words from Blake in the cherry blossom scene, if the family like those trees, as the Germans did, is chopped down, there is yet uh, renewal and rebuilding that will happen. And it will happen in the ruins. And that's mm. exactly what is happening in this in air quotes, family scene. Right. This is not an actual family. This is not actually Schofield's wife and child. But I think, this is my supposition, Mendez is telling us that the world is actually, in a sense, made right civilizationally, not, not salvifically, but civilizationally, when the family is reunited, when a man is reunited with his wife and when children are welcomed, to use Richard John Newhouse's phrase, that he pioneered for George W. Bush when he was president, welcomed into life, not treated as a curse, uh, certainly not aborted, certainly not hated, or, or even just in kind of day-to-day -day terms, you know, seen as, as a drag on your daily ambitions. No, children are welcomed into life. And I think that is what is some of what is happening in that basement scene. Absolutely. Prof profound scene. Right. Yeah. And even from a character perspective, this is where we start to see Schofield as a father, a husband, a, a feeling being rather than a soldier. Mm. He's a fantastic soldier. He, is, he, he does a good job of separating emotions from his commands. He carries forth his commands, though I think at first he, he didn't want to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but at this scene, and we know nothing about Schofield. We know nothing about his family, nothing about his background. When the child enters the scene, he becomes this doting father, crouching in front of the child, playing with the child, giving the child his own, the, the, the milk that he was carrying uh, in his canteen. And it's a, it's a powerful scene. And, and I think from then on, Schofield is a little bit undone by this scene, though he still remains strong-willed to carry forth this command, perhaps even stronger because of this scene. Uh, and we get a full orbed character, not just a soldier, but a father and a husband um, uh, through through the scene. We find out later that he he is a father and a husband. And it's, it's a beautiful scene. And that leads into this last theme, I think, the value of a life. Um, yeah, break that down for us. Tell us about uh, Mendez and his, his, his view of the, the value of the life in this movie. Yes. Uh, those are very good words there just a minute ago about uh, about Schofield's character development. Again, I don't think this is just a quest story. It is that, yes. Mm. And, and it is amazing cinematography as you brought out several minutes ago. That's right. But it's actually much, much more than that. It's, it's what films um, are supposed to offer us, high-level films, that is, auteur films, if you will. Mm. Um, they're supposed to develop characters. And if you're paying attention, it's not just that Schofield himself survives and goes on a big journey and uh, stops the assault at the end of the movie that, that is uh, doomed. It's that Schofield is reawakened. It's that all he is doing is surviving mm -hmm. for the first half of the film. But then he begins to awaken. 
it actually starts with the cherry blossom scene right. uh, that we've referenced several times in, at minute 38 of the film. That's when things are starting to come back into play. Blake is talking about the family. Uh, but but there's a longer tra- trajectory and there are a bunch of, you know, terrible war events that transpire after that. That leads into, ultimately, Schofield coming to the end of his journey, and again, spoiler alert, and meeting Blake's brother and handing over uh, the medals, or, or not the medals, but the effects, that is, from Blake's life and all that remains to memorialize Blake is just a, a few small trinkets, right. basically bits of tin, uh, referencing the earlier conversation between Schofield and Blake. And so I think, here again, my supposition, uh, I think what Mendez and the screenwriter are conveying is that actually bits of tin, though of course not ultimately important, do convey tremendous meaning and import the material culture, the material things of this world. God made a material physical world, didn't he? Mm -hmm. When he wanted to put his glory on IMAX display matters. These effects matter. There's more to say about that, but I think that's the beginning of of how we understand the film's resolution. It's not just that he meets Blake's brother. Mm -hmm. It's that there's a, a, a development around the idea of tin mattering tremendously. That's great. And we, we know that Blake earlier in the movie, he's seeing the medals in relation to family. Mm-hmm. Um, he's seeing as that if he earns a medal, it's honorable not only to him, but to his brothers, to his mother, his father. It's, it's familial. And Schofield doesn't really have that view at that point. Um, but, but later he comes into it as he gives the effects back to the brother and even asks if he could write the mother. He has a wider view of of family. Um, it's uh, possibly developed through just thinking about Blake and 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 considering this um, this honor to speak with Blake's brother and carry out the rest of the command. That right there is a very good point that um, could be developed more um, than I and others certainly have. Uh, the idea that uh, that that line that you just pulled out, I didn't I didn't write about it in my in my essay. But uh, and by the way, very annoying, because when you when you write on a film, you miss all these things, especially <laughs> when you're not when you're not an expert in a film like I'm not. And and I've had several folks write to me in different formats and uh, and point out things that I frankly mm-hmm. missed. Uh, so here's another one I missed that he asks um, uh, lieutenant or lieutenant, as the British say, Schofield. Uh, Lieutenant Blake, that is, excuse me, if he can write uh, to to his mother, yeah, yeah, to his family, right, and uh, and that is that is that is crucial mm-hmm. because yes, that is that is yet another tie into this theme of how important the family is. I I I am surprised to say this, but I think the majority of re- reviewers that I read, honestly must have engaged the dialogue. And I recognize they watch a lot of films, probably one after another. They're not sitting there with subtitles, most of them, you know, slowly working their way through the film. They have a, re- they have a deadline, they have a review to write, right. and so they're working through it, okay? So, of course, they're going to miss things. We're, we're all going to miss things. But I don't think the significance of various lines from the film was unearthed. And honestly, Mike, I credit you there. I think that's an important line. He has 
downplayed, Schofield that is, has downplayed the importance of the family. Not because I don't think he likes them or loves them. He does love them. But in order to survive, mm -hmm. he has to suppress that which he loves. Right. But then at the end of the film, love for family has blossomed like a tree. And again, Schofield has reawakened. Right. And it's, it's just after the scene where we see him walk over and, and pull out the picture of his wife and, and child. Um, he is, he's reawakened to this. And perhaps it was out of necessity that he, he wasn't looking at that throughout. And I think you, you kind of allude to that in your piece in Providence. Um, but I, I love, I love, we're gonna have to close it out soon, but I, I loved how you said he recovered, uh, his, his feelings of the good, the true and the beautiful, mm. um, through this journey. Can you, can you parse out maybe what that means for Schofield and then what that, the significance of recovering that would look like for believers today even? Mm. That's a good question. I think what has happened spiritually is what has also happened in the movie earlier physically. Here's what I mean. And I, I, I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, <laughs> uh, put this as a banner over this entire uh, overheated little podcast, but right. <laughs> early in the movie, in the German barracks scene, a bomb explodes because of a rat. I think there's something more with rats, by the way. I didn't pull any of that out in my <laughs> essay, but I think there's more there uh, to think through. Kind of uh, an element of the created order that is created, but honestly isn't really an enchanted part of the creation, right, frankly. Right. But anyway, more to say there. But uh, in, the, in the German barracks scene, a bomb explodes and Blake actually pulls Schofield out of certain death. Mm -hmm. Schofield is not able to survive uh, by his own lights in that scene. He is going to die. Right. He is underneath rubble. He can't escape. Blake pulls him out. I think what happens in the film's end is that Blake, his memory by the film's end, has pulled Schofield out of what you could call spiritual death. Mm. Such that through Blake's words, through his comments about the importance of honor and family and renewal and his love of the small details of creation, the different variations of cherries and cherry trees, Schofield himself has come back to life. And if we, if we transpose that theologically, uh, we are all of us on our own kind of quest story in natural fallen terms. We're just trying to survive. We're just making our way through this, frankly, pretty brutal existence. And uh, we have family. And uh, we live amidst spectacular beauty. Uh, and we do do some things that we should do, as Schofield is doing in his pre-awakened state. And yet, we're not alive to the wonder of God and God's creation. And so, though we're engaging beauty, truth, and goodness, to use that classical philosophical formulation drafting off of theology, off of Scripture, mm -hmm. though we though we engage beauty, truth, and goodness, we are not a living witness to it. And thus, we are not a joyful participant in it in the sense that the gospel has awakened us to the joy of joys, mm. uh, the joy that is in Jesus Christ, the joy that upon regeneration leading into conversion then saturates the earth like a black and white film coming into vivid color. Previous to uh, gospel awakening, we can appreciate elements of this earth and of our life, 
but we cannot be, again, a living, vivified witness and participate in um, this doxological drama that God has authored. But through Jesus Christ, through the tree that right. heals us uh, now and fully and finally in the age to come, uh, we, we can. We can awaken to beauty, truth, and goodness, as I think, again, in a kind of proximate way mm -hmm. Schofield has at the film's end. Yeah, that's a great word. I think that's a great word to close on. Uh, as I, I'm reading here, just scanning your, your piece, uh, you close it out by saying how fitting and how consonant with rich Christian theology was the line, keep your eyes on the trees. Uh, it was a tree that, it was a tree misused that damned us. It was a tree fitted for torture that saved us like Schofield at the end of his journey, sitting in peace beneath a tree, a living thing that is itself a witness to the goodness of God's creation. So it will be a tree's leaves that heal us, weary pilgrims in the new Jerusalem, pulling from Revelation 22. Keep your eyes on the trees indeed. Such a powerful movie. Uh, I think this was a, a great conversation. So thank you for having me on to, to talk about it. Yeah, my joy, my joy. Appreciate you uh, engaging the film, the discussion, and uh, our final word to uh, listeners would be, indeed, keep your eyes on the trees. Thanks for listening to City of God podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man.